This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, how's everything going today, man? How you feeling? Uh, you know, living the dream. All right. That's what I like <laughs> to hear. The first conversation is a little bit awkward and unfortunate. But I don't know if you saw it or not, Chris. Mitch McConnell was giving, was leading a press conference on Wednesday. And in the middle of his talk, he just kind of froze, just stopped speaking and was just standing there looking really, really bad, looking like he was just in really bad shape. I haven't heard exactly what happened. Uh, obviously, it has something to do with the health issue. But I think it goes to the fact that what many people are worried about. It's not just the age, because I think when, you know, just because you, you don't want to exclude someone because of age, but when you're not in good health to be lead, you know, have a president and have, you know, one of the leaders in the Senate to be in that kind of shape where this stuff is happening really over and over again is unfortunate. And I, I don't know what it means for us. It's not something you want to see. And I don't think it, it looks good, you know, on, on where we are with our leadership and and, and just making sure we're, we're reviving our leadership and, and getting new voices in there. Any thoughts, Chris? Well, I mean, I, I think that it's an important conversation. It's, it's probably a difficult one. And funny enough, I think churches are probably in a in an interesting position to help have the conversation in, in public. Because like you said, you don't want to disclude, disclude people because of their age, right? And discriminate because of age. And we certainly have a world where access to care is better and life expectancy is longer, those types of things. But it, it is not a, it's not news to anybody that as humans age, that some of our capacities are diminished. And so when you're looking at a federal government that on the whole, like I don't want to target any one individual per se, but on the whole, the federal government is much, much older than the general population. And it's got to be something that we discuss. And it has an impact on policy. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it has an impact on your ability to get your job done, right? If you don't have the energy to have all the meetings that you need to have or whatever, that has a major impact. And as we know, it's going to be a big question as we go into this next election, not just for Biden, but I mean, Trump's not that far behind him. I think people are more and more worried about that. How does Biden get through a whole campaign? How do they both get through a whole campaign? Can they be at the top of their ability in those positions? It's a question we have to answer. I know you know, when it's about Biden, Democrats don't want to hear it. I'm sure that Republicans don't want McConnell out of there and maybe lose a, lose a seat. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's a conversation we have to have. 
Yeah, for sure. The the average age, you know, in, in Congress, I think is about 60 years old. You know, so it's, it's, it's these key players as members of Congress. It's across the federal government. And it's it's a conversation that you got to have. I mean, it's, it is very, very touchy because especially I think, you know, in, in my experience, I'll just speak anecdotally here. The, the, the boomer generation does not want to be told that they kind of like can't do particular things. And again, I'm not one to say that folks need to be pushed out of positions because of their age, right? Like you reach a certain number and then you're out, but we do have to be cognizant of the fact that, the, the world is moving along, technology is moving along, and policy needs to be made about that stuff. Uh, and then just the general capacities of human beings do diminish as we age. Yep, very true. So we'll see what's going on with that. Obviously, we're praying for his family, for his health in general, but it does have some other implications for our politics in general. As we, you know, I say this over and over again, if you have not seen the How I Got Over docuseries that we spent about a year and a half uh, putting together about the role the authority of scripture played in the black church and its music and its establishment and its social action, all that stuff, you got to check it out. It's a really good product. And I think it'll shed some light on some things that I think sometimes in pop culture and and in the academy, uh, we don't hear accurately. And so I'll I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Also, check out our whole life project video that just came out. I mean, I've talked to people who said they were in tears watching that video. It's honest, it's real, and it's the perspective of uh, primarily Christian Black women who want to get their voice heard on the abortion issue. So go check that out. Always want to give a shout out to our supporters, our patrons, all those folks who support us in what we do and how we do it. We appreciate y'all. Again, if you want to support the Church Politics Podcast, you can go to Patreon dot com slash church politics and you can become somebody who gives monthly if you start to give monthly then you will receive premium episodes and we have a really good premium episode coming up for you this week so you got to check it out likely dealing with the hollywood strike but you can only hear it if you're a patron but let's get to it so grab your bible get your mind right and prepare to think not like a republican not like a democrat but to think like a christian Let's start with some scripture. Lamentations chapter three, verse 40 says, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Chris, last week I tweeted this message. Where we get the idea that someone who loves their culture shouldn't publicly critique and correct that culture. Repeating narratives that make any culture seem faultless isn't helpful. Examining your community honestly and constructively is an act of love. I think that in our brokenness, we have trouble acknowledging our brokenness. We don't want others to think less of us and we don't want to think less of ourselves. So sometimes we deny our culture's internal problems publicly and sometimes even privately, which is might be worse. And I think the culture war makes this worse because every issue becomes some zero-sum game where to admit any fault is to put yourself at a disadvantage in the public square. As a consequence, we deny that, which is blatantly obvious to any good faith observer, like it makes it untrue or as if it goes away just because we pretend it's not there. Not only that, Chris, but our cultural tribes also chastise those who place a mirror in front of the group or who start measuring our behavior by our own standards 
and God's standards. It's gotten so bad that self-examination on certain subjects is automatically called self-hate. Now, I do acknowledge that there are those in every culture who attack and demean their own people for the entertainment and validation of outsiders. That's wrong. It has been happening from the beginning, and it, 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 it is very wrong, and it deserves to get called out. That is self-flagellation. That is not self-examination. But Chris, we make a grave mistake if we expand the nef- definition of self-flagellation to include honest self-examination. We need to make a clear distinction between the two because no culture is above or below a fair and honest critique. We cannot improve. We cannot correct ourselves. We cannot thrive if we refuse to critique ourselves honestly. If we're always trying to protect ourselves from internal critique, it's not helpful, nor is it biblical. And I'll tell you this, Chris, if you dig deep into some of the less known or less popular speeches and sermons of leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Gardner C. Taylor, you will find messages where they were bluntly critiquing their community. Straightforward saying, you got to do this better. We have to do this better. We're getting this wrong. And I'm convinced based on what I hear, see on social media, that some of us today would call that self-hate. But I think it's the opposite. I think when it's done, again, constructively with love and fairness, it is a form of love. Love must be honest and true. It's not self-hatred of people. It's hatred of evil. It's disapproval of the behaviors that make us suffer more. Some leaders who sternly corrected their people, like Jesus, also died for them. So how in the world would we call that hate? We must examine ourselves personally and collectively. This includes Chris and I. So today, Chris, I want to critique our community at risk of being misunderstood, at risk of taking some hits. So be it. But I want to start off, and and I'll kind of tell you where this comes from. About a month ago, the Anne Campaign hosted a panel on violence. And it was with another faith group who is primarily black faith group as well. And what we were trying to do, Chris, is probe the issue of violence and see how the church could better speak into that issue. What we were doing well, what we weren't doing so well, and what we could add kind of to our practices and our our efforts to move the needle. Because it desperately needs to be moved. I don't know hardly any pastors in the city who haven't had to do funerals, haven't had to console people who are losing their children based on this violence. And so we were trying to address that. Now, in the conversation, one of the panelists used the phrase black on black crime. And it may have even been more than one. I I can't remember exactly. And so after this phrase was used, someone stood up and said that we need to stop using that phrase because it's misleading. She went on to say that All communities are more likely to commit crime against people who look like them because that's who they're in closest proximity to. And therefore, black on black crime really isn't a thing. And I've heard I don't know about you, Chris, but I've heard this line of argument more and more, especially from like, you know, the activist community and academic circles. And I want to I want to first say what I agree with them on. I think part of their point is that The black self-image has been so viciously vilified and dishonored that we get slighted for things that happen in every community. And I believe that that is too often true. Just turn on the television and you will see how the black community is portrayed, how black men and how black women are portrayed in pop culture. In many cases, it is criminal. 
So I want to I, I want to say that I agree with them there. That said, the idea that crime, especially homicides in the black community, isn't a particularly significant problem is dishonest. It, it's a cope, as they say, and, and I think a rather unhelpful cope. Yes, people are more likely to commit crimes against people who look like them because that's who they're around. Yes, poverty plays a significant role and has been playing a significant role. Yes, the history of our subjugation and the systemic attacks on our self-image are relevant to this conversation. I'm not saying that these aren't factors. I believe that they are factors. But to pretend the rate of black homicide against other black people isn't outrageous in comparison to many other groups, most other groups, is verifiably false. No matter how much I wish that wasn't true, Chris, that's the case. And we have to be honest about it. Yes, we can Google articles that play with the numbers and just focus on percentages. So you can Google articles which will say the percentage of black people who kill other black people isn't that much higher than the percentage of white people who kill other white people. That's true. But the difference is the frequency. Black people are killing each other at a much higher frequency. And you must look at the amount. You must look at the amount of people that are dying, especially per capita. And there is a clear difference, whether I want that to be the case or not. I wish it wasn't the case, but the numbers prove that to be the case. According to the FBI, while black people are only about 14 percent of the population, we are 54 percent of the homicide victims. Now, you do the math. If 90 percent of the people who are getting murdered are getting murdered by people of their own kind, And we're 54% of that homicide rate. Again, it means the frequency and the amount is not okay. All right. And we need to deal with that. Now, I'm happy, Chris, to use a different phrase. And I don't know what your perspective of this is going to be. I'm happy to use something other than black on black crime. I'm not married to the semantics here, but I cannot pretend this isn't a bigger problem in our community than it is in others. And guess what? Other communities have bigger problems than we have. It's just not this one right now in general. And part of the problem, and this is what people don't want to hear either, we named all the historical factors. We named poverty as a factor. And I think those are serious factors. But guess what's another factor? Culture. Not black culture in general, but some culture within the black community. It's tight, but it's right. And I know some folks don't want to hear that. We're supposed to stick to the narrative, but the narrative is intellectually dishonest. And I think it's harmful. I am more worried about the lives that we're losing than the PR. Now, let me say this as I hand it off to you, Chris. Part of the reason I think people want to kind of just get rid of this concept and not deal with it is because there are those in other communities, many white evangelicals especially, who will use black-on-black crime to downplay police brutality, to make black people look a certain way on every single issue, or to excuse doing nothing about racial injustice. And so for those people, I would say shame on you. And you should feel some responsibility for this conversation and the way that it's happening. And that's why a lot of people want to run away from the whole idea, from, the, from really what's going on, because they know it's misused. And so what I'm trying to do, Chris, is say, yes, it is misused. Yes, there are other factors, but we have to deal with the reality and go from there. Go ahead, Chris. I'm very appreciative of this conversation. I, I am certainly one that recoils at the use of the phrase black on black crime. I might have 
been the party had I been at the meeting to say, let's stop using that phrase. And, and, and the reason I don't like that phrase, in my opinion, it is a dangerous trope. As, as you have noted already, most of the crime in America is interracial. The perpetrator and the victim of most violent crimes are of the same race. And so while black on black crime is a technical reality, right, black people committing crime against black people, I think because we don't hear about white on white crime and we don't hear about uh, Latino on Latino crime, that phrase tends to suggest that there is something irregular happening when a black person victimizes another black person, as if other racial groups don't victimize one another. And so I, I think because of that, it distorts the problem, right? So uh, it, it makes it seem like the problem is that black people victimize one another in a way that other communities don't victimize one another. And, and you can get down this road of do we love ourselves enough and all this type of stuff. It's, it's really not that we hate ourselves in some particular way. We're committing too much violent crime. We're committing too many murders. If you bring other people around our communities with enough frequency, I'm pretty sure they will also get killed, right? Like people are not out there looking for black people to kill. The problem is, like you said, the frequency with which people are being killed and violent crime in general is, is the big problem. And I, I take great pains when I talk about black and black, black on black crime to make sure that my sort of disdain for the phrase is not confused with the people who want to then take that reality and then sweep the crime problem under the rug. Because while it is not irregular for a black person to victimize another black person, because when somebody is out to victimize somebody, they're usually going to victimize somebody that is in proximity to them because the way our country is set up, that is usually going to be somebody of the same race as them. But we do have a frequency problem. We have a situation where the per capita, and, and this is, I, I like what you said about the data, it's really important to look at per capita if we want to compare what's happening inside of our community to what's happening in other communities. And per capita, our homicide rate is eight times higher inside of the African-American community than it is in the white community. That's 2019 FBI homicide data is, is not very refutable and it presents a very serious problem. I think the phrase black on black crime puts too much emphasis on blame toward the offender and not heartbreak and agony for the victims. I do think the phrase can get us down a wrong path in terms of searching for solutions. And so I, I, I would certainly throw out that phrase because it I think it suggests a wrong problem. I think it, it misdiagnoses the problem. I don't think that we should then take that reality and turn it into a situation where we try to act like we don't have a problem. Because, you know, as somebody who grew up, you know, on the west side of Chicago, lives on the south side of Chicago, passes on the south side of Chicago, have too often had to loot memorial services for folks under 30 years old who lost their lives to community violence. We shouldn't act like we don't have a problem. We should be serious about solving that problem. And the reality is that two things can be true at the same time, right? Like it can be true that our black selfhood and black personhood has been dishonored, diminished, and, and otherwise disregarded in the culture. And we need to do something about that. We need to defend that. It can be true that police kill black people at disproportionate rates in this country. Uh, it can be true that black people are overrepresented, generally speaking, at pretty much every 
phase of the criminal justice system. And I think all those things are true, but we still have a problem inside of our community where we are killing each other at much higher frequency in other communities and then is acceptable. And it's unfortunate that too many people act like these two things can't be true at the same time. Yeah. Because they really are. And, And again, it's all about narratives. We know, we all know that no culture has the perfect narrative. Yet we want to go out into the public square and even with each other and pretend in front of everybody else that we have the perfect narrative. We don't. And as Americans, everybody should feel that they have a stake in this conversation. Everybody should feel that they have an obligation to do what they can to change this. And that's just not the case either. So I'm with you. I, I don't like the phrase, but it does probably doesn't bother me as much as it bothers you just because I'm so focused on the fact of how bad the issue is. Uh, and, and it's not that you're not focused on that, but that's kind of where that's kind of like, yeah, whatever you call it is what you call it. This has to stop. And the other thing that I think people don't want to do is admit that there's a culture like we have this cultural relativism that says if anything's bad, my culture, there's somebody else that's responsible for it. Now, there are other facts. And we talked about that. We know about racial injustice and we talk about that on the show all the time. At some point, though, you got to say, hey, ain't nobody else going to fix this for me. And there is a cultural element. And here's one of the reasons you know it's cultural to some extent, not black culture, but a culture within black America is not all these kids are living in abject poverty. We all know, at least the people I know, all know kids who grew up just fine that wanted to be in those situations, that wanted to prove something, whether it was about their manhood, about their authenticity, to go in and start living a lifestyle that puts them in one of these positions of either getting shot or being shot. Now, everybody that's shot is not doing that, but I'm saying there's a certain lifestyle that makes you more susceptible to, to this happening. And it has to do with culture. And some of that has to do with music and it has to do with other things. We have to confront that and we can't put it off on everybody else. When somebody else is responsible for something in our community, we should say something about it and be honest about it. But who's going to fix it? We got to deal with it. We got we got to we got to confront that, man. And it, it does not make us lesser than anybody else. It does not make us more depraved in general than everybody else. This is one of the problems we have to deal with. And I hope to hear some other people talk about some of the problems they have to deal with and be honest about it. Yeah, I, I, I would actually suggest that not only does it, it not suggest that we are less than anybody else, much of the cultural issues that we have really have to do with abandoning the culture that was really passed down to us from our ancestors, yeah. a culture deeply rooted in faith, rooted in the gospel of Jesus yeah. Christ, rooted in family. And we have abandoned that for a more, you know, dare I say, white westernized philosophy of how society should be organized and operate. And and, and, and so to me, like it, 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 it says something positive about indigenous black culture to suggest that what we really need to do in order to solve some of these problems is really return to that old landmark and pick up some of the things that our foremothers and forefathers would have held up to us as critical for our culture that we have pushed aside in favor of stuff that we learned as we pursued our university degrees and got broader access to academia, media, and all those types of other things. We put some things of our culture aside. Shamelessly, I will plug how I got over. I know I was going you know, if you did. Uh, you know, <laughs> because we discussed this in great detail mm-hmm. in that documentary series. And I think it's so important that we acknowledge 
these gaps in our culture, but but they're not impossible to overcome because we actually have in our legacy and in our sort of cultural inheritance the tools that we need to fix it. No, that's right. I mean, how that's the, the exact point. How I got go back to what got you to this point and, and what helped us overcome, you know, one of the greatest injustice in, in American history. You got to You got to go back to some of those things. But again, the point that we're making is when somebody critiques their own culture with love and compassion and does it fairly, you ain't got to, it ain't got to match the narrative. You don't even have to agree, but I do think it's wrong to say that they hate their people or something like that. Now there are some people that go too far and we already talked about that, but we all should be critiquing, uh, examining ourselves, critiquing uh, our culture so we can all get it right. And we should all be willing to put a helping hand out. And this too, when somebody else critiques their culture, not try to use it against them. Yeah, that's one of the big things. When when somebody's honest and say, "Man, we need to fix this," not use that to not care about justice. Not use that to say, "Well, everything's your fault," and I'm going to ignore all the history because you got that you got something wrong. So we got to change that, man. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. <laughs> Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I hope you don't mind, Chris. I'm going to hit you with a, a little more scripture. And this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I want to give you an example right now, Chris, of what I see as one of the most egregious examples of how greed has us kind of diminish the value of human dignity. According to the New York Times, Chris, in 2004, Gilead Sciences decided to stop pursuing a new HIV drug. The public explanation was that it wasn't sufficiently different from an existing treatment to warrant further development. In private, though, something else was at play. Gilead had devised a plan to delay the new drug's release to maximize profits, even though executives had reason to believe it might turn out to be safer for patients, according to a trove of internal documents made public in litigation against the company. Gilead, one of the world's largest drug makers, appeared to be embracing a well-worn industry tactic. 
gaming the U.S. patent system to protect lucrative monopolies on best-selling drugs. The patent extension strategy, as Gilead's documents repeatedly called it, would allow the company to keep prices high for its drugs. Gilead could switch patients to its new drug just before cheap generics hit the market. By putting that drug on a path to remain a money-making juggernaut for decades, the strategy was potentially worth billions of dollars. The delayed release of the new treatment is now the subject of state and federal lawsuits in in which 26,000 patients who took Gilead's older HIV drugs claim that the company unnecessarily exposed them to kidney and bone problems. I couldn't help, Chris, but go back to the person that might have came up with this strategy and what it says about their priorities and how they rationalized putting people at risk, making people sicker with making money. And maybe to a smaller extent, this is something that we all have to deal with in one way or another. I mean, I've often said, if you really want to know what somebody stands for, look at the decisions they make when it comes to their money. Mm -hmm. We can see a lot of instances, Chris, where there are people who go all in on certain subjects. But then when the subject involves China or somebody that holds their purse strings to a certain extent, they go mute. This example of greed, though, and, and, and it's one that. You know, Big Pharma has been guilty of, I'm sure, more than more than one time is appalling because it deals directly with healthcare and obviously a virus that has been had such a, an, an impact on our society and on certain communities within our in our society. What were your thoughts when you, you, you read through this article? Yeah, I mean, so this is one of those things that greatly it burdens me. It animates me also. You know, so when I, when I was, what was it, I guess, you know, around 2006, seven and eight, but working on, on healthcare reform, there was a lot of research and learning that had to be done about pharmaceutical companies and medicines in this country. And this is one of the great, I'm trying to be sensitive and not say crimes because it's not technically a crime, but it is a moral crime for sure that takes place on a regular basis in this country. Like you said already, scripture points to us a lot of things, you know, about the relationship of of mankind to money. It is at the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus, uh, in his sermon on the Mount, talks to us about how nothing really competes with, with God for worship like money does. And because of that, we have to have good regulatory policies to make sure that we don't have to only depend on humans sort of discovering their better angels in order to protect the sick and people who need medication in this country. We have to regulate a lot of things when it comes to all the different games. This is one of the games that pharmaceutical companies play, uh, but there are many, many games that pharmaceutical companies play to really, really maximize their ability to make money off of sickness in the United States as well. I think we still have a healthcare system that is ultimately designed, and I, and I don't want to get too much off into this, but if, if you look at the outcomes of our healthcare system, it actually works just the way it's designed it, because it keeps people alive and sick for a really long time. And it allows for a lot of people to make a lot of money off of that sickness. And I would say to those in our audience who would say, you know, well, you can't put too many regulations on these folks because, you know, these are businesses and their job is to make money. 
that type of thing. Here the facts about this particular HIV drug, right, and, and, and its development, right? So there were 73 federal government awards to 11 researchers that were directly linked to the development and clinical testing of this drug. It cost the federal government $143 million in total. And those are the facts about this particular drug, but it is a pattern that holds for a large segment of the pharmaceutical industry where you have these pharmaceutical companies who want to go and make their PR and their lobbying strategy that we've invested in this research and development. And so it is kind of our appropriate role within the market then to capture and realize those those profits. But the reality is, is that taxpayers are investing in so much of this research and and most of it, we saw the same thing with the COVID vaccines, right? Most of the accomplishments that we see that come from these pharmaceutical companies would not be accomplished without significant investment from the taxpayer. Uh, and so I think it's really unfair that the taxpayers are investing in the research and development, but then unable to benefit from any of the discoveries. And so even when I hear people talk about negotiating, you know, allowing the government and allowing Medicaid to negotiate drug prices, I'm like, you know, I suppose I'm supportive of that, but we certainly shouldn't be negotiating simply from the position of a buyer. We should be dictating terms from the position of a major investor because taxpayers are investors in much of this research and development. And if you're taking $143 million in taxpayer funds to develop a drug, then the federal government should be able to put some kind of policies in place to say that you can't just play all these games, have all these patents, because the patent situation right now is an adverse incentive, right? Like if, if there were no incentive to elongate the patent time and capture those, those numbers of profits, then they would have let this drug come to market, presumably, you know, allegedly, presumably. They would let this drug come to market sooner. But the, the patent situation is an adverse incentive. There are a ton of adverse incentives that our Congress really needs to be engaged in our and our executive, you know, to the extent that it can, should be engaged in realigning a lot of this stuff. And and the last thing I'll say is that while this is in uh, I think the, the New York Times, this is not news to the United States Congress. The House Oversight Committee in 2019, under Democratic control, heard testimony about this particular situation with this particular drug and this particular disease on May 16th of 2019. And you did not see the then Democratic chairperson on a big crusade. You didn't see the Republican ranking member on a big crusade. You didn't see any of the members of the Oversight Committee on a big crusade. But then, you know, when January 6th and all this stuff comes up, that's what we're supposed to focus on. And you can probably tell I'm a little bit animated about this, but it is, it is such a huge factor uh, affecting the, the quality of life for so many people with so many illnesses all over this country. And, and this is black people, white people, Democrats, Republicans, all types of people are being impacted by this. And I think it's a, an example of a reality that I think I observe, which is that inside of institutions of power, both sides of the political spectrum are very invested in either themselves being led astray and distracted or actually purposefully leading people into distraction on issues that 
are not nearly as significant to your day-to-day quality of life as that. Or, or big pharma is considerably invested in them. Yeah. Uh, be another way to put it. This is just a sickness. And this is a sickness that big pharmaceuticals aren't going to fix. Yeah. Right? Like the, the idea that somebody would think like that, the idea not only that these corporations would do that, but also that we don't have the will and the people we elected to stop it, to stop it from happening again. They got to get sued by the people, whereas Congress could have acted. Yeah. And done something about it. And just Congress doesn't do anything. Yeah. Congress lets the courts do things and they let the president, they don't do anything because all they want to do in general is keep their position. It's about self-preservation. So when you're talking about health care, when you're talking about immigration, Congress, just in case you didn't know, Congress is supposed to do something about that. Yeah. Congress creates legislation. They don't do anything hardly on these big issues. And it's interesting to me, Chris, what we call socialism. Because so many people are against socialized medicine, but we already, in a way, have that to a certain extent, right? Yeah. Like if you're if we're paying all this money for these drugs to be created, the only thing that's not socialized is the profits coming out of it. So, so I get why people are leaning into a kind of populism, are leaning against the establishment. Now, I tend to think that populism is, is too much about a grievance. I think too it's too reactionary in many instances, mm-hmm. and I think it comes with too many ad homonyms about another class, right? I, I don't think it's nece- I don't think it needs to necessarily be about that. But I get why people don't want to vote for the establishment candidate. Mm-hmm. I get why we don't want to keep continue to have different candidates, different problems, but the major issues remain the same. Yeah, healthcare has not been fixed. I'm sorry, immigration has not been fixed. I'm sorry, but we can argue for. Three months about all, and, and, and there's so many different, as you brought up, there's so many different distractions. I can't say that it's bigger than this issue that's been going on and people are dying right now. Like, But we will talk about this and bring this up in the pulpit for the next three months. And and not talk about pharmaceuticals at and all. And not talk about pharmaceuticals. And just to put this in context for folks, right? Like this, essentially, you have a pharmaceutical company. They developed one drug for HIV it had some adverse side effects for folks. Then they developed another drug that they said in their own documents is less toxic, but they delayed the release of that drug, presumably to extend the life of their patent, which gives them basically a monopoly because over the life of the patent. I don't think you have to presume that. I think it was fairly explicit in their internal uh, email. I mean, it's, it's, it's in court and I don't want the end campaign to be sued. So, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm giving some kind of, try to give some benefit of the doubt. But they, they delayed that release because of the money that they can make with the patent. And the problem, I think, is the patent law because the, the old form of the drug, the patent has expired. Before the patent expired, they were the only drug in the market. It was costing folks $26,000 a year to get this drug. One that, that the this, government that the government invested heavily in, right? Millions of dollars. We invested $143 million. Hey, that must to get it back, to get our money, to get our investment back. Yeah. You invest in a product and then you get overcharged like that. To get, and, to, and to show that it's overcharged, now that generics of the old form are hitting the market, people are being able to pay as little as $400, right? For the same, I mean, for the generic version uh, of that drug. But the patent says that nobody over the life of that patent can create a generic version of that drug. And 
I don't know about you. I don't think I have to be a patent attorney, but I think people who are listening to the Church Politics podcast can can discern that if there are laws in place that allow a company to charge $26,000 for something that could cost $400, we need to be changing those laws. But uh, like you said, Justin, this we, we should do a segment. We have to do a segment at some point focused on Congress because yeah, we do. I am, I would say this and get off of it because this is not what this segment is about, but it is getting frustrating to me to constantly hear people talking about the court took away this right and you know, the president overturned that and Congress it's not supposed to be even going there. Congress is supposed to make the laws. Most of the stuff that you see the courts doing or the executive doing, it is because Congress has failed to act in places where they are supposed to. Completely failed to act on both sides. And I you can get mad at me for saying that if you want to on both they but guess what? What they're what they're doing though, they they get into the money though. Yeah. They're using whatever information they can get to be in the stock market and all that other stuff. And nobody, I mean, shout out to the folks who tried to stop it. It still hasn't been stopped yet. But some way that these these folks get in there and they money, you know, their their network goes up pretty, pretty well. (laughs) Apparently, they're getting something accomplished. It just isn't what we need. But we need to put pressure. I mean, we can go on and on about this, but I'm just going to stop it with this. Stop defending all these folks because they you identify with them. I'm not going to say none of them do good work. Some of them do good, do do good work and are very sacrificial with how they're going about that. It's not everybody, but we got to stop defending everybody just because they're in our party or they look like you as a whole, they're not doing their job. And that includes half of them that you defend half of them Mm -hmm. that you defend. Look at their, look at their record of corruption, even the corruptions that's been called out and you'll sit there and defend them because they look like you. Yeah. We got to do better, man. We can complain about this, but we're voting these people in. Because we get caught up on these small issues here and there. Or we got to stay with our party because something happened in this county over here. So, like, let's be serious. We want to talk about these these culture war issues or, the you know, these these small back and forth with, within uh, different states. We got way bigger fish to fry when people are using drugs to stay alive. And these companies are, are holding back better drugs so they can make more money after we are the ones that pay for the, the drug to be created. We'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. I think it's a little bit better. The first two subjects were pretty tough. This is somewhat some good news. I mean, some folks that are, that are trying to do the right thing. According to Reuters, U.S. lenders hoping for easy merger approvals in the wake of the March banking crisis should instead expect tough scrutiny from regulators worried about financial stability, the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau told Reuters, and that is Rohit Chopra, and I hope I said his name right, but Rohit Chopra is the director of the CFPB, and he also said in an interview that the agency was pressing ahead with enforcement efforts despite multiple stays imposed by a federal judge and some litigation that they're that they're going through due to a challenge before the Supreme Court. So basically, they're trying to stop some of these mergers because I'll be honest with you, Chris, a lot of these mergers shouldn't be going through with with some of these banks. I mean, if you if you look at our statutes and the spirit of what we're supposed to be trying to do from stopping monopolies and putting consumers in a good position, they shouldn't be going through. Rohit Chopra, from what I can tell, 
is trying to do his job in a real way as the top guy who's supposed to be protecting consumers. And I think one of the biggest problems I have, if we're going to stay on the subject of the establishment of both sides of the aisle, is that I think they've done a terrible job protecting consumers Mm -hmm. and upholding our antitrust law. There is so much corporate capture in our administrative agencies that monopolies seem to be not worth preventing. Like some of these mergers, you see, like, how do you have the two biggest companies merging together and nobody saying anything? Consumers don't seem to be getting the consideration that they need to get. Because what happens is you get people in these administrative agencies that are there for four to eight years or even longer. And then when they're done, guess where they go? They go to the people they were trying, they were supposed to be regulating. But from what I can tell, Rohit Chopra and also Lena Khan, who is the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, seem to be taking a different posture, seem to really be about the consumer and doing their job instead of just doing, you know, as least as possible so they can go on to a better career in that industry. They haven't won all all their battles, Chris, as as you can see with the Supreme Court and even some of the stuff that's going on with Lena Khan, but they're fighting. And they are not bowing at the altar of all these corporations. And again, I want to be very, very clear in this conversation in the last, we're being hard on corporate. I don't dislike corporations. I think we need corporations. There's corporations that do, do a lot of good. However, corporations must be regulated. Yep. And that's part of why the government is here. We don't we shouldn't have a a government that is run by corporations and where corporations have so much capture within the government that they really just get to do what they want to do. So I will give the Biden administration that credit. I think Rohit Chopra and Lena Khan are a bright spot, a real bright spot within uh, that administration. I- any thoughts on this, though, Chris? Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm not like uh, in financial industries or anything like that. I appreciate and uh, applaud, deeply appreciate what these consumer advocates are doing in their functions. It, it's unfortunate that in, in most cases, they are advocating from the perspective of protecting consumers, but their specific agencies are not technically the ones tasked with making final decision on whether these types of mergers can take place. So again, it's one of those instances where you have some folks in there who seem to be fighting the good fight, but there is a need for popular discussion of this and in the communities, in town hall meetings with, with members of Congress, when folks are stopping by your door, you know, if you're in a, a primary state and somebody's stopping by to talk to you about presidential candidates and stuff, these are all the things that, that make our civic life function. I know I probably get to sound like a broken record on this podcast sometimes, but I, I just don't think you can ever underestimate the value of talking about these things in those environments. If you're a pastor talking about these things from your pulpit and not just making your only political commentary being about the latest kind of culture war thing that's in the news, but actually finding ways to talk about some of these substantive issues so that we can raise them up from the from the grassroots as well. Because these advocates inside of government, I think are going to be much more effective if there is a credible threat from voting populations. Yeah. And so I, I just urge us to to use what, whatever platforms and power we do have uh, to use them because the, the, the collective impact can be more than what you think. And, and as you referred to in the last segment, Justin, populism is having its day because if populism, I don't count myself necessarily as a populist, but if populism 
and class warfare seem to be the only movements that are going to stand up for people who are really hurting and really being kicked around, you're going to see a lot of people flock to that. Shame on us if the Bible-believing church doesn't perceive in the scriptures a mandate to stand up for righteousness. Yeah, and if if you think that there is, because we can have a discussion on which party is better on certain issues. I have my opinions on that. But if you think there is one party in this country, one of the two main parties in this country that's always looking out for the little guy, that's always protecting the consumer, that's always looking out for you and fighting corporations, you're wrong. In this duopoly that we have, we don't have a party who is doing that consistently, especially not within the establishment. So if all you care about is party, and all you want to know is who in your party is most likely to win, then just understand you may be part of the reason that we keep getting this situations and can't f- fix the big issues and corporations do whatever they want to do. Just something to think about. Anything else, Chris? No, I think it's been a, a good few segments here. And I set my piece, but I'll end where the same place I usually end. Use your platforms and your power, whatever it is that you have, as small or as large, because together we can do more than we think we can. That's real. That's that's a good place to end. And camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and camp. I'll let you. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com CT.